Welcome to episode 134 of The Professor and the Hack. Thanks for joining us. I'm The Hack, Hugh Remington. With me as always, Network 10's chief political editor, national political editor, any other kind of political editor, The Professor, Peter Van Hanselen. G'day, Hugh. Good to be with you as always. You've got so many titles, Peter. Oh, well, yeah, it's your old title. You're now the National Affairs Editor. Anyway, we're getting off track. We are. Newspapers are best known for having too many titles. But um, but anyway, let's get stuck into it. Yes, let's get stuck into it. Uh, we have to slay that dragon, inflation. Absolutely. It is galloping over the hill. And in fact, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we are really just days since the budget, which was full of restraint and discipline, that uh, inflation is the dragon that must be slayed. And so therefore, there's going to be no cash getting splashed about to help households. And you just wonder... A few days in, can the government keep its nerve as we hear inflation, according to the Reserve Bank, is going to go even higher than Treasury reckons? Yeah. I mean, I, I doubt it will, but it does need to, other than perhaps some very targeted handout relief for people in low socioeconomic groups, because they're going to feel the brunt of this. Now, the problem, of course, is handouts to people in low socioeconomic groups are the most inflationary of handouts because they are the people who need to spend rather than save because they don't have the capacity to save and they therefore spend it on consumer-based items, you know, just because cost of living is so brutal for them, which then in turn has the highest inflationary impact. But it's a, a sort of it's a sort of, in my view, unavoidable handout, irrespective of inflation, if the situation continues as it is because, you know, people in that cohort need assistance more than anyone. But the government's in a difficult position, Hugh, you know, no matter what they do on this front, because the only way that you deal with inflation is by causing pain to people, putting up interest rates, restricting the amount of handouts and spending or tax relief for that matter the government might otherwise provide, because the hope is that you are trying to essentially bring us to the brink of a recession to slow down spending and therefore you know, get the inflation back under control. You don't want to go too far and tip it over, but by the same token, you have to go in that direction. And if the government acts contra to the Reserve Bank on this, they keep putting up interest rates, the government keeps, if you like, spending with its fiscal policy. If that were to happen, then inflation doesn't get under control. You can end up potentially with a wages price spiral and you can end up with, you know, that analogy that is often used where a car is both the brake and the accelerator are being pushed at the same time. The brake by the Reserve Bank as it puts up interest rates to try to slow down the economy and the accelerator by a government if it does keep spending. So far, Labor's avoided that. How long do you think they can do that? Well, everything you say there is commendably orthodox and it is the orthodoxy that's being argued by the Treasurer and he has you know, he's been very consistent in this messaging. But you mentioned low socioeconomic groups. That's a lot of Australia. If you listen to a new study that's out from the ANU, a quarter of Australian households are worried right now about being able to pay their bills. And uh, those who are caught in the pinch, it's people who are heavily indebted with young families, I guess, who've maybe down to one income, one and a bit incomes maybe, their mortgages are up and going higher. And suddenly they thought they were tracking well, and they're really, really worried. And these people quite reasonably want to be heard and responded to by their political leaders. So the pressure is going to build like crazy. In many ways, it's lucky for Labour there's not an election nearby, but they will be being marked, I think, by what happens now. 
The key, as you say, is to get inflation down so the dragon is well and truly dead and victory can be declared before the next election. But do they have time for that? Do they have time? I mean, they have to go to the polls in roughly two and a half years. They're likely to go somewhere between two and two and a half years, you would think. Now, if they do that, we know that real wages aren't expected to rise for about that length of time, roughly, a little bit less. We know that energy prices are going to go through the roof during that period of time. We know that inflation is predicted to come down, but not back into that 2 to 3% band that the Reserve Bank requires, which means that interest rates could well continue to go up during that entire two to two and a half year life cycle. Not every month, but perhaps every few months. And people at the end of that term, and obviously debt will continue to rise as well. So people at the end of that term are almost unquestionably going to feel worse off than they felt at the last election. Now, that's not going to be Labor's fault, to be clear. Uh, And unless Labor does find a way to exacerbate the problem, it's not remotely their fault. And in fact, if anything, you could argue that the way that they choose to govern, if they do govern cautiously, we could well be in a less bad position than we would have otherwise been with a different government or with a different complexion to a Labor government, other than having Jim Chalmers and, and Anthony Albanese act the way that they may. But none of that matters, does it? Because voters don't sit there and say, well, I'm worse off than I was three years ago, but that's okay, because I think the government's doing their best. What can often happen when you've got a bludgeon in opposition and the selfish gene in a voter is that you hold a government fairly or unfairly to account for that. That's the risk for Labor here, I think. So that's a political risk. And I think taking it from a household perspective, I think people are looking at it. And you know, I think the Reserve Bank governor is right to say that there is a lag effect with the rising of interest rates, that people don't really respond to the first or maybe the second, and then it starts to flow through. There are a lot of people still on fixed rate mortgages and so on. So they feel for the moment as if they're sitting pretty. But all of this is, is starting to kick in. I think households are starting to look at those forward bills they're looking at and going, wow, how are we going to manage these things? You know, I think that quite apart from the political consequences at an election sometime in the future, there will be an anger consequence in the short term, and that could spill out in a, in a range of different ways. One of the things which is plainly so central to the pressure on interest rates is the price of power and particularly gas. So the government has got this, I'm going to make it a binary proposition, but basically you either give people money to help them pay their gas bills, or alternatively, you tinker with the machinery of the production of gas and the pricing of gas. And then there are a number of options there to try to drop the price at the supply end. A great quote from Ed Husick, the industry minister, because the gas industry always says, oh, we can solve this, just give us more supply. You know, let us go searching. Let's get all those environmental laws out of the way. Let's just get more out of the ground and make more profits. And Ed Husick saying, we don't have a shortage of supply problem. It's a glut of greed problem. What do you make of an argument like that? Well, I think it's a it's a, both a reasonable argument in a general sense, but it's also a good political argument. But but it's it's also something that unless government changes the law, it just is inevitably what happens with business. I mean, the glut of greed, whether we like it or not, the primary role of businesses is to deliver to their shareholders. That's their purpose. Now, it's not a particularly virtuous purpose, but it's what you damn well want if you're a shareholder. And the shareholders are the owners of the business, mum and dad investors, as well as bigger shareholders. And their purpose, when you privatize energy companies, their purpose is no longer to service the needs of the community when they're government owned. 
their purpose is to deliver profits to their shareholders. So the only way that government can do anything about that, and I'm not advocating taking these industries back over and, and putting them in public hands necessarily, although I think that with some essential services, that's actually not an unreasonable argument, even though one-time liberals would be quite critical of that. But at the very least, what you can do is the government needs to find a way without causing too much angst to the market, too much sovereign risk, too much retrospective law changes, it can regulate. And you look in WA uh, with the way that they have operated their gas market, which has carved out domestic requirements from any international, if you like, shipping of gas, they've done it very well. And so their, their price rises are being contained, whereas around the rest of the country, particularly up and down the East Coast, that's not the case. Now, it's not an easy fix. The, the WA Premier, Mark McGowan, says, well, you just need to copy what we do. It becomes potentially retrospective if you try to do that, and therefore you, you can scare the markets and you can create sovereign risk for investment in this country if it is retrospective. If, however, you do it prospectively, then the lag effect before it has an impact, you know, as contracts have to already run out and, and, and so forth, it's so far off into the future that it does nothing for the here and now problem of these energy price rises. So it is a public policy conundrum for the government to work out how to deal with it. And I guess the solution in a nutshell is to try to find some way, and this goes to Ed Husick's point in a sense, the glut of greed. Well, he has to work with the glut of greed and try to talk to business somehow to get an arm-twisted agreement perhaps with government that we won't come in and create sovereign risk, which we don't want by being wholly retrospective in imposing regulation on you, if we can come to some sort of amicable halfway agreement where we don't wait as long as we're legally required to without new laws to be able to impose what we want to. And maybe we can find a halfway house where you're happy because you're servicing your shareholders because you can tell them government isn't coming in like a bull at a gate and changing the rules on us. But by the same token, we're not sticking to our guns on what is our purest legal rights right now without a law change. Because if we do that, we risk the sovereign risk of government intervention. That's, I think, where the debate's at. And, and part of the softening up of business, I think, is what we hear from Ed Husick on, on that front. It's a very tough needle to thread because, you know, will it be enough to make any difference that the public feel is material to their particular issues and business as well, of course, and yet you cause these uh, enormous fights. And then if you look globally, there's some really interesting stuff happening that has been going on for a while, but you saw the US Fed Reserve putting up another uh, 75 basis point rise as their inflation tops out over 8%. These are huge jumps. These are whacking around the US dollar. You know, it really is making shifts there. We're also seeing with Xi Jinping being reinstituted as for another five-year term, that one of the things, some of the analysis there about it, what he is in policy terms, is that unlike the system that provided the opening up of China to the world, which is where under Deng Xiaoping initially, there was this willingness to kind of embrace capitalism, to get rich quick, to get rich is glorious, said Deng Xiaoping famously. And that proceeded through the Hu Jintao period before Xi Jinping. So capitalism was a great thing. And, and you know, I, I remember walking through Shanghai, visiting people, going to Beijing, many, many trips to China during that period where you saw people with their wealth multiplying yearly and not going up by double-digit percents, but multiplying, becoming rich very, very quickly through these capitalism opportunities. Xi Jinping is not that guy at all. And he has reportedly put a range of billionaires under what effectively amounts to 
uh, house arrest, including Jack Ma, the head of Alibaba, being one of the most prominent of those. And part of what his purpose is, is actually to slow growth. And that's why you're seeing China's growth rate slowing down a lot. Why is all this relevant to us? Well, because, of course, we still dig up. Our entire economy is still based on what we dig up and send off to China. So if you look at the US, you look at China with perhaps a long-term cycle of reduced growth in China, uh, Europe, of course, also going off. These are the other headwinds that we face. Jim Chalmers has talked about it. But I don't think people have really comprehended the profound underlying shifts that are taking place for our economy. They're really almost a generational shift. Oh, yeah. And, you know, when, when you intertwine the security risks between the US and China, the regional focus of it to where we are, and the possibility that we'll increasingly have to choose at different points in time on that front, when you intertwine that with the economic challenges afoot, it's a very risky, dangerous, and scary time on all fronts at the moment. And, you know, Australia's always been well-placed in terms of our natural resource advantages, as well as, frankly, our regional positioning for the Asian century that we're now well into. But the risks attached to that are also becoming more prevalent as well. And all of that is the sort of medium to long-term challenge. And that's what governments have to think about. But people just remain focused on their own short-term challenges. And, and it's, it's across these short-term challenges, stepping back into that for a moment, Hugh, they are there for all cohorts in the community. They're more acute by definition for people in lower socioeconomic groupings because of the immediacy of the cost of living challenge with their limited incomes with rising costs attached to such high inflation. But you then move up the income scale and property owners with what's happening with interest rates coupled with the collapse in housing, which seems to be well afoot and will only continue with a lag effect, you would think. And then the potential for unemployment to rise in the years to come as forecast, but perhaps more greatly than forecast, the spiral effect of all of that then has flow-on effects too to where the Western world is at versus what is happening in somewhere like China. And what happens to you in China economically if there is this collapse in the economies of the Western world, given the China's dependence on it, notwithstanding some of the shifts that we're seeing with the modern Chinese leadership? It is, it's a scary time economically and in security matters internationally at the moment. And within that framework, representative democracy in terms of the public's faith and confidence in it has probably never been weaker. I want to talk about some of that with a, a very interesting, not so much a speech as a fireside chat from the outgoing head of ASIS, a spy agency. We'll take a quick break. Back in just a second. Welcome back. This is uh, episode 134 of The Professor and the Hack. Thanks for staying with us. Something really interesting, PVO, at ANU, which is a university or it's based in Canberra, of course, as people will generally know, has a very good international record for its School of International Relations of the Science of Statecraft and so on. Rory Medcalf, who's a professor there, had a great sit-down chat, a very rare event. You can find it on YouTube with Paul Simon, who is the outgoing Director General of ACES, our super spook spy agency, the one that runs agents overseas, 
very, very rarely speaks. He retires in a couple of weeks. Interesting guy himself, um, went up high through the army, former deputy head, uh, chief of army, major general. And he gave a very measured but quite profound insight into where we are in the world and the need of for, obviously, he's spruiking his own skill set, the need for there to be this human intelligence, this capacity to go and find the secrets of other nations and all the rest of it. He says, basically, that one of the key things, he says, we cannot be in Australia over-prepared. He's being very subtle in his language. We cannot be over-prepared for the threats that lie ahead of us. And history, he says, won't be kind to us if we are underprepared. Now, he's too good a public servant to say, we've got to be spending a lot more money, governments, to get us ready. But that's fundamentally his point, is that the strategic threats facing or risks facing Australia are at a high level. We must be prepared for it. We need, in his language, to have a whole of nation effort to lay out the risks we face and to psychologically prepare us for more interesting times. He's putting us essentially as subtle as he can on a kind of war footing. And as he says in there, it is all about China. Can I ask something in, in the context of exactly that? What is your thoughts? And, and tell me if I'm verbalizing Paul Keating in the way that I'm putting this, because I'm not intending to. But what are your thoughts on what seems to be his thesis when it comes to China? when you sort of cut past any elements of diplomacy, not that that's what Paul Keating's really known for. But his argument seems to be that whether we like it or not, America could well retreat into isolationism and our historical alliance with them in the face of a standoff, Team Red, Team Blue, against China is not a position Australia wants to find itself in. And we should be willing to cuddle up to China, even if China is a non-democracy and even if there are sort of threats there, ultimately you know, our future is better defined by that embrace than not if America is sort of forcing us to sort of choose. What do you make of that? I mean, firstly, am I being unfair in that interpretation of PJK? But secondly, assuming that I'm sort of somewhere near the mark, what do you think? No, I think you'd nail the issues there. The, I mean, the great statement, you know, broadly distilled from Keating was that we must find security in Asia, not from Asia. And that's a shift from the World War II sense of, you know, that stage Japan was plainly the threat. And that we had to make our connections, understand ourselves as an Asian-placed nation and, you know, make our connections, be real. And I think we've gone a long way towards that, to be fair. And I think we have a much more profound respect and understanding of Asia than we would have done a generation ago, or certainly in the 1980s. And I think the point that people can make that if the United States falls back into isolation, then we seem to be the, by now, very small koala bear that has gone and poked the dragon. And that's not a cool thing to have done. And that is a threat because it is the Democrats who are essentially the holders of the internationalist, international alliance concepts within the United States defense and, and international relations you know, thinking. Whereas if you go to a Trump or Trump-like leader with that enough of the foreign wars, let's pull back, cozying up to Kim Jong-un, cozying up to Putin. I love Xi Jinping, all that routine. If you get another one of those coming in there, you can pretty much wave goodbye to Taiwan. So what's changed, I think, is that until Xi Jinping, that was conceivable. And in fact, it seemed almost inevitable that there would be a peaceful rise of China, which everyone could celebrate. You know, the lifting out of poverty is a magnificent human achievement, which we all should celebrate. And it seemed possible that we would We'd get on fine. 
what we're seeing, particularly over Taiwan, the bellicosity over Taiwan, is a signal that China is happy to, if need be, kill people in huge numbers to achieve what is essentially a kind of an ideological bauble. And that is this notion that Taiwan is part of China, and I'm going to win it back, and therefore I'll be among the greats reunifying China, because China's got a long sense of its own history. Does it end after that, though? Like, I mean, obviously, I don't say that to downplay the brutality and the significance of if they were to try to take Taiwan in, in whatever form that looks like. But if they took Taiwan, they've already got Hong Kong, Tibet as well, the Spratleys. I mean, having the greater China that they want, perhaps other than some parts of Mongolia, do they rest on their laurels? Uh, because that's the, the greater China from ancient civilization that they were after, and therefore they'll potentially be exerting bullies on the world stage with their power, but not expansionist. Or do you have fears that expansion follows? Well, this really gets back to, is the Anschluss the end of it? And, and really, you only know that through history. Uh, Taiwan was never part of the imperial power of China. Particularly, it was, it was you know, derided by one emperor in days gone by as being just a collection of rocks and mud. They weren't interested in it. It's a symbol of the Communist Party defeating their adversary, really, isn't it? That, that's what it's all about, really. It's, it is the final victory over the Chinese non-communist nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek. It matters a lot in the Communist Party pantheon of achievements. If he was to knock that off, no one else cares about it as much as those old you know, red guards care about it. And certainly the people of Taiwan don't bloody want it. And China has expanded into Tibet, making claims over that. I don't see China then marching off through the Philippines, marching off through other kinds of places. That doesn't seem to be the case although it does give them enormous range of movement in a naval sense to then spread out through those, as they say, past the first island chain and out into the deeper Pacific. And the fact that they have been keen to look for bases, you know, that's a loaded phrase. Is it a base? Is it just a refueling mechanism for ship visits? What is it? But plainly, they are looking for bases and military assets in the Southern Hemisphere, Pacific, and we've seen that with them poking around Papua New Guinea. They've seen them poking around the Solomon Islands most famously and in Vanuatu. So they want that. So China wants to be the dominant Pacific power and certainly Western Pacific power. I was going to say on that, perhaps I'm naive, but were China a democracy and not necessarily a Western representative democracy, but a, a, an Eastern version of a democracy that Western democracy can identify with, were that what China was, I would be infinitely more understanding about them wanting to expand their sphere of influence. Because you look at the US and military bases all around the world, right across the Pacific, they're a democracy. A lot of people don't like their presence, but I'm more relaxed about it because of their democratic tendencies. Were China simply on the rise as a competing democracy, sort of what India could be in many years to come if they retain democratic principles, which is its own question, I would be more relaxed about that because I would understand China's ambitions in that respect. It doesn't mean it doesn't create risks. I mean, notwithstanding the whole democratic theory that two democracies don't tend to go to war, yada, yada, you know, two superpowers, democratic or not, that have interest in expanding their sphere in the same region is, is by definition a problem. But I would be more understanding about China's want to do so if they were a democracy. The fact that they're not a democracy, I get that they want to. I just have profound problems with it because I don't like an authoritarian regime expanding its sphere of influence. 
Yeah, I think in a general sense, it's better if things are not militarised. Sure, yeah. You know, Australia has influence across the Pacific, has some measure of influence across the Pacific, without making that fundamentally a militarised arrangement. It's a trade arrangement. It's got a whole bunch of other aid and other elements and, and just diplomatic connections that go through there. So, you know, I, I don't think there'd be an objection to China, democratic or otherwise, having trade and diplomatic influence across the region as it rises in power. It is the military nature of it, I think, is the thing that has become scary. And also China has other unfinished business. It has particularly unfinished business with Japan as it perceives it. So, you know, you can't say for certain that things would end. There are disputed islands again. You know, I think what we're hearing from ASIS, what we're seeing in the arrangements that are being made, as reported by the ABC in recent days, for some longer-term infrastructure to support B-52 nuclear-capable bombers in the Northern Territory, is a recognition that as long as there is this military language around particularly Taiwan, we either decide to cut Taiwan loose and leave them to their own miserable fate, or alternatively, we try to be party to language and build-ups that carry a credible deterrent against that to try to stop that happening. And in the end, the fate of 24, 25 million Taiwanese is going to matter to us. We don't want war over it. I don't think anyone wants war over it. It'd be catastrophic for everyone, and particularly for the Taiwanese, it'd be awful for us. But, you know, there's a fair degree of recent history says that there's no provocation like weakness. And the best deterrent is to be a party to a process that says this is not going to work for you. It's hard, though, to see the US intervening directly, isn't it? No, no, it's not. You really think that they would do that? I mean, don't get me wrong, it's infinitely easier to see them doing it directly in Taiwan than somewhere like Ukraine, obviously, where there's the supply chain support that they're providing. But you think that they would get engaged in direct military intervention were China to invade Taiwan? So you would have China on US warfare? Yes, that is the wargaming. It's the wargaming that gets done by the US and it's the wargaming that gets done by China. There is an expectation that the official policy of many decades standing in the United States is what they call strategic ambiguity. Never say too explicitly whether you would or you wouldn't. But Biden has constantly used phrases to say, yes, we would go to that war. And then the White House puts out a statement and says, oh, there's been no change in our policy. I think he said it often enough for that to be seen to be a deliberate policy. He is trying to signal quite clearly that the United States would. Now, Biden himself is an unpopular figure in the United States. He's about to get his ass kicked in the midterm elections. And to my measure, his best hope of getting reelected if he stands again in 2024 is if Trump stands, because Trump carries, <laughs> one might say, a fair bit of baggage, much as he's adored by a big chunk. Of it's more likely to be the Florida governor, though, don't you think? Well, yes, but, but then that's a, that's a fight that has to be Ron DeSantis's prospects. You know, he has to win the fight within the Republican Party potentially against Trump. And beating Trump is hard. Beating Trump in a primary is bloody hard. <laughs> yeah, and Trump, who was happy enough to, to kind of like mentor Ron DeSantis, is now quite happy to kind of shut him down and start talking against him. So that looks that if Trump wants to run, that would be a contested space. But put it this way, if DeSantis, if Trump wins in 2024, I would say that increases the prospects significantly that there's a war over Taiwan in our time, which is not for anyone because the Chinese will make a calculation that Trump or a Trump-like character will mean what they say about not getting involved in wars in Asia. And, I mean, you know, not wanting to completely freak out our listeners potentially here, but 
if the precedent is set of China going to war to take over Taiwan, and if there is that risk, and if the US doesn't intervene, and if you then start to wonder whether or not that's the end of the line versus the beginning of it with Chinese expansion, all of a sudden, sitting here in, in a resource-rich middle power like Australia, unable to realistically defend ourselves without United States support, your situation becomes a little bit more scary, doesn't it? Absolutely, because at that point, the credibility of United States hegemony, if you want to put it that way, military power has been punctured, probably fatally. Not to say we're going to get invaded and all that other kind of carry on, but it would unquestionably shift the world in genuine historic terms forever. And also then it goes down to the question of, you know, it would certainly encourage Russia, for example, to think, well, there's, you know, the US can be beaten again. I was just going to say, it's, it's fascinating because, and maybe you know, I might be reading literature that's too old for recent Chinese military expansion, but my biggest fear about the US is the political and popular will to, if you like, do its job defensively in Asia from what it promises to do were China to take a heavy hand. My fear is not its military capability, it's the, the oomph that would be behind that because I, I feel like the United States' military capability is still far superior to China, even though the gap is narrowed. But it's, it's the home front risks politically, which is partly what you're pointing at, obviously, with the, with the Republicans in particular. But even just were they were they to have a greater military power in a frightening situation where it became a hot war between these two superpowers, I think that they would were there the might behind them, they would have you know, at home they would have the capacity to really do China over pretty well at the moment. But I don't know that they would have that home front support. Well, uh, rich topics for next week because by next week we'll know the midterm elections in the US. We'll have a greater idea about what the politics are of America right now. And also we'll have the Prime Minister just about to jump off for the G20 meeting, which will be in Bali in the following week. He's also got summits at APEC and ASEAN in Thailand and in Cambodia. So we're going to see in our region, in our time zone, the leaders of the world essentially gathering fresh from new information, essentially, about what's in the mind of American voters. So plenty more to talk about in the weeks ahead. We'll talk soon. That's for sure. Thanks, you. See you, Matt. You have been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.